All right, everybody, let us begin, 12.30. Welcome, if this is your first time, we're especially glad you're here. Your first time, ah, oh, we're gonna make you stand up and tell us all about it. No, just kidding, we're not having any of that. Um, if it is your first time though, um, please, we ask you leave a tip here, and that goes straight to the kitchen staff for the food that they prepare. And today we had some delicious steak and stuffing and salad and, and uh, was it apple dessert? I don't even, I'm just saying, letting everybody on camera know what they missed by not being here. Um, but, uh, you know, Ruth's provides all of this for free, and so we just ask that you tip whatever you think it's worth or however much you are able in order to bless the people in the back that fix it for us. That's the least we can do for being able to gather in this spot for like 12 years now. This thing's been going on for a long time. I've been leading it for coming up on six and Steve was leading it before that for five or six years. And so this is a, it's a long running ministry that Ruth's Chris has done. And we really, those of you in the restaurant industry know that that's, that's a sacrifice, but it's one that Jeff and the staff make willingly for us. So it's really cool and I want to make sure we treat them well. We're in the book of Judges, the darkest chapter in Israel's history. And what we've seen last week was how the, the, the pattern of the Judges, the, the, the deliverers, has begun. And that's the section we're in all the way through chapter 16 where God is going to periodically raise up these, these leaders of Israel. And we saw last week the first three were surprised. They were not what you'd be expecting. The first was a Gentile convert named Othniel. Uh, then the second was a crafty left-handed trickster named Ehud. And then after that was uh, a mysterious figure named Shamgar, who all we know is he wasn't a Hebrew. Um, and that's literally, we have one sentence about him. But the point of it is, is God is constantly surprising His people by using, they say you can, you can still draw straight lines with broken crayons. And God is using some very broken crowns uh, to deliver His people. The whole country is basically descending lower and lower every cycle into uh, chaotic anarchy. And that's going to be the pattern for the rest of the book. And so the people will cry out. God will raise up a deliverer. The people will sometimes turn back after He's saved them. And then they go back to their old ways. And so we saw uh, last week these them being oppressed by these different peoples. Now this week, the, um, the source of antagonism is going to come from unfinished business. When Joshua came in, remember those of you that were here last year when we went through Joshua in the northern campaign. So earlier in the book of Joshua, we had the southern campaign and then the northern campaign. The northern campaign, he wiped out this very powerful stronghold city called Hatzor. And Hatzor was in the north and it was, it was a powerhouse. And Joshua basically destroyed their army, broke their control over the region, but then it was up to the tribes to go in and to occupy that land, to take it over, to drive out the vestiges, the remnants, the insurgents, the, the remaining forces of this powerful group of people that Joshua had beaten militarily. Well, we see now in this chapter that they did not do that. After that initial victory, the tribes did not... Uh, maintain control over Hatzor. And at some point, because this has been about a generation or so, maybe longer, after Joshua, the, the peoples of Canaan that weren't driven out came back together. Hatzor was reconstructed or rebuilt or, or reestablished as a center of power. And there was a king, King Yabin, 
in your Bible it's spelled Jabin or Jabin. And he, that's, that was the name of the king of Hazor. Not his personal name, but like Pharaoh. Because there were other king Yabins of this area of, that ruled from, that, from Hazor. So Yabin is like, a, it's like Pharaoh. Uh, or the word king, and so it's a, more of a dynastic name. So once again, the Yavin of Hatzor has arisen as a powerhouse and has rebuilt his army pretty impressively. And that's the, where we find now in chapter 4 of Judges. It says, after Ehud died, so this is kind of linking us back to the previous chapter, and, and keep this in mind. I mentioned this the first week in the introduction. The Judges are not straight uh, chronological accounts. You can't just link them back to back to back to back. There's a lot of overlap between judges. Some judges are, are leading at the same time in different parts of the country. There's, there's not a linear timeline like we would think if we were writing a history, but it's more geographically based or thematically based. So you can't just, it, it, there's, there's some question about when these various judges ruled and, and when the events took place that are described, because the events at the end of the book are going to happen probably concurrently to some of the judges' rule earlier in the book. And so just keep that in mind. Hold the chronology with loose hands, and, and sometimes people get real bogged down into like, well, this says it happened then, but then this says it happened then. And, and ancient historiography wasn't the way modern historiography is. And we just have to be okay with that that people group things thematically. Old Testament and New Testament. You know, one gospel has Jesus cleansing the temple at the beginning, John's gospel, and then all the other gospels having him doing it at the end of his ministry, Passover week or the Passion week. Um, we just have to realize that they structured chronology based on theme and literary features, not on strict when it happened on a timeline. So just be aware of that and, and, and know what's going on. But <clears throat> this puts us roughly sometime after Ehud. Okay, so whether this was around the time that Shemgar was delivering, as we saw last week, or before that, or slightly after that, or at the same time, and there's evidence that it's probably at the same time because of what we're going to read in the next chapter. Uh, it says, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's that sentence reoccurring over and over. Remember, what does it mean? Well, it means they they went after the pagan gods. And we've talked about that, what that involved. Everything from ritual orgies to child sacrifice. Okay, so it's not like they were, you know, not, it's not like they were just kind of slipping up a little bit. Okay, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord speaks about grave, grave immorality and injustice, violence, uh, perversions, offering of your children in hopes that you'll get better crops this year. That kind of thing. Really, really detestable stuff. So that's what it means. And doing it all under the worship of pagan gods. Breaking the very first of all the commandments. So, the Lord sold them into the hands of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. And that's just a Hebrew name. It means kind of like plowed or, or cultivated field of the Gentiles. So it's just this, this plain old field, agricultural area of the nations, of the Gentiles, of the Canaanites. That's what that means. Um, NIV just leaves it transliterated as a place name. Because he had 900 chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, who do we remember who was famous for having chariots and oppressing the Israelites until they cried out for help? 
We know another king who did this. His name was Pharaoh. We remember that. Those of you who were here five years ago, you remember going through the book of Exodus. And we saw what happened. So this is, just should be a clue. Uh-oh, hey, Exodus 2.0 is going to happen again because now this is going to be structured. And, and it, it's more than just a coincidence. This chapter is going to tell of the deliverance against an army with chariots in a supernatural victory. And guess what the next chapter is going to do? It's going to commemorate that in song. That's exactly what happened in Exodus. Exodus 14 told the deliverance supernaturally by God against an overwhelming army of chariots. And then Exodus 15, the song of Miriam that celebrates the deliverance of the sea. So this is, there's, there's definitely some, some looking back at the Exodus going on in this chapter. And God's going to act once again, but this time it's going to be in an unexpected way. So for 20 years, not 400 years like with the Exodus, but 20 years, still a long time, of oppression, of, of ruling over with iron chariots, of, of, of being basically a, a military uh, powerhouse controlling a people. And the next chapter, you have to read chapter 4 and chapter 5 together because the next chapter is going to give us a poetic description of the conditions that this chapter talks about. This chapter has given us the bare bones historical outline. The next chapter is going to give us the, the feeling of it. And, and give us a little more detail. So you have to re keep this in mind for next week when we look at the, the poetic account of this. But verse 4, here's the surprise. Deborah, a woman, a prophet. NIV just, I'm going to be correcting the NIV a lot here because in this section, the NIV, they overinterpret a few things. And I want to make sure that the original Hebrew stands out or if you're reading a different version and you wonder why it reads differently. So literally the text says, Deborah, a woman, a prophet. There's a word for female prophet, but this is emphasizing a woman, a prophet, because it's very unusual what she's doing. Deborah, uh, a woman, a prophet. And then the next phrase says, wife of Lapidoth. Maybe she was married to a guy named Lapidoth, but that phrase is also literally woman of torches or, or, or fiery woman is how some translations have put it. So there's question among scholars. Is this saying this is, she had a husband and his name was Torches? Because Lapidoth is just the word for torches. Um, maybe. Or is this a description? Because to describe someone as a, a, blank, a blanky blank, you would say a woman or man of blank. That's the way you would say that in Hebrew. So it could be this is giving us her husband's name. Or it could be saying this is a fiery woman. This is, a, this is a, a lighting, giving light, a torch is a symbol of leadership and illumination. There's debate, and scholars are legitimately divided on that. So interpret it how you will. But when we're reading Deborah's account, what I've noticed in looking through the commentaries, and I've been using about a half dozen commentaries as I go along through this study, is the scholars are really, they come down on one side or the other based kind of on their theological understanding of women in leadership. And the scholars who uh, have more theological difficulty with the concept of women in leadership tend to read the Deborah story one way. And the scholars who think women should absolutely be in leadership tend to read it another way. And very few scholars take the medium route of saying, this is an ambiguous section and it could be read both ways. I'm in that middle group. Uh, I think that this section, you can read it one of two ways. And it's kind of like a Rorschach test. When you look at Deborah, you're going to look and you're going to see things based on what you bring to the text. 
So we should just acknowledge that up front because Deborah is an unusual situation in Israel. And we'll see as we keep going. So Deborah, wife of Lapidoth or woman of torches, fiery woman, uh, was leading or judging, literally in Hebrew, Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord God of Israel commands you, Go take with you ten aleph, or ten clans, or ten thousand, depending on how you translate it, men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. This is kind of up in the north of Israel. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Yabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So now you have Deborah. She's a prophetess. That's, that's clear. She's also judging Israel. She's leading the nation. That's clear. Two things that are pretty surprising. Prophetesses we've met before, Miriam and others. But, but leading the nation, that is a, that's a new one. And there's no hint of this. Some people say, well, it's because there weren't any men that stepped up and did it. Okay, well, the Bible does not, there's nothing in the text that says that. That's one of those examples of bringing something to the text. The text just tells us she's leading the nation. And she is going to function in a way similar to how God functioned in the Exodus account with the call of Moses. Because she's gonna, she calls this guy Barak. And Barak is going to be, and his name just means thunderbolt or lightning, um, his na- he is going to be the one who leads the people, who leads the army. So you have Deborah calling him, saying, the Lord says, go. Very similar to how the angel of the Lord called Moses, let my people go. And Moses also was like, I don't know. And that's what we're going to see with Barak. And then God's going to reconfirm, and then Moses is going to go, and he's going to give a concession. Okay, Aaron will go with you. She's going to give a concession. So there are echoes of the Exodus account all over this story, but the funny thing is Deborah is in the place of the angel of the Lord to the other leaders. That's, that's kind of the role she's filling in this, and it'll be very clear in just a minute. So she says, go. You're going to be, Brock, you're going to be the one who leads the people and overthrows Sisera and all of his chariots. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now this line is where people's biases come out. Some people look at this and they go, he's being disobedient, he's being a coward, he's, he's trying to, this is why women have to lead in the church because the men won't step up. Um, you know, this is the, these are the kind of things you'll read about this. And he's scared, he's doubting God, he doesn't have faith, this and that. And that. Maybe... The text doesn't really, it it could be, but back in Exodus, chapter 33, when God said to Moses after the golden calf incident, and he reinstated the covenant, and he said, I'm sending you into the land, what did Moses say to God face to face, to the angel of the Lord? He says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. If you don't go with me, we're lost. And that was not Moses being cowardly. That was Moses showing devotion and trust that without God's presence, no human actions would ever win the day. So it is just as likely that Barak here is actually exercising the same type of faith and saying, the Spirit of God is with Deborah. If you are going, it's not going to work. 
Because you are God's presence. You're the prophet. You are the one who speaks to the Lord and is our leader. So if you don't go, it's like God not going with us. And if God's not going with us, we're doomed because we can't win this on our own. So it's just as likely that Barak is making a very astute pledge of faith in the leadership of Deborah that God has granted it. Now which is true? Which is the case? That's up to you as you read and study and figure it out. But I'll tell you, the Hebrew text leaves it ambiguous. And scholars are divided on whether Barak is showing a reticence like Moses when he was called, or whether he's showing a faithfulness like Moses in needing God's presence somehow with him. And this is in the time of darkness. This is in the time when, when the priesthood and, and the teaching and everything has just fizzled out and all the tribes are kind of doing their own thing and and this is the time of anarchy almost in Israel so for him to see God's role in Deborah and say I'm not going unless you're coming it's either a mark of disbelief and cowardice or it's a mark of piety and I'm not going without God and you decide which one you think is more likely but the text offers both so, and this is the NIV kind of sends you one way with their interpretation in the next verse. Um, I'll read it in the NIV and then I'll give you kind of a literal what it says. The NIV says, uh, Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. So the NIV reads it as Deborah's kind of chiding him for a lack of faith, which is where that interpretation comes into play. That's one way to read it. However, and if you have a different version, maybe a CEB, New Revised, or something else, it might read a little differently. So I'm going to read it to you and try to give you a sense of the literal Hebrew, what it actually says the verse. In Hebrew, it's literally what it says. Very well is not even the text. Um, that's just an addition by the NIV to bring out the sense of the verb. What Hebrew literally says is, I will absolutely go with you, Deborah says, but on the way you are going, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will sell Sisera over to the hand of a woman. That's kind of the literal wooden translation of it. So Deborah's either saying, fine, I'll go with you, or, oh, I'll absolutely go with you. And she's either saying, but because the way you're handling all this, you're not going to get any glory. Or she's saying, and just know that on this journey, you're not going to get glory for it. It's going to come through the hand of a woman. And at this point, the reader is thinking Deborah is who's going to get the glory. So two different ways to read this text. This is why it's important when you're reading Scripture and studying it to read it in more than one translation. This is why I translate the Hebrew text every week of the chapter that I'm going to teach and try to read through different translations as well to know the different flavors. If you're only reading from your translation, you may never know that there's any other way to read these passages. But there is sometimes. And it really can bring out different meaning or different nuances in the text. So in this case, this whole chapter, there's a lot of issues that are predicated on how it's translated. And that's why comparing translations is helpful if you don't have access to the original languages. But either way, you've got Deborah and she's going out with him, and Barak is going to lead the armies, and they're about to face a pretty unstoppable force. Chariots were the tanks of the ancient world. A foot soldier, an army of foot soldiers, had no chance against chariots. Just nothing. It'd be like, you know, Civil War guys lining up, and then a row of, of 
just tanks right across from them. I mean, the, the hundred times out of a hundred, the tanks are going to win. And these weren't just chariots, these were iron chariots. It means they were chariots that were fortified with iron. You know, sometimes they put like spikes and swords and things on the wheels so when the chariots drove by, it would chop people and maim people and just mow them down. So they were very fierce, and this was all in this area with a big open plain, which is why they could control it with their chariots. So Deborah calls Barak. Barak says, I'm not going unless you're going. She says, I'm going to go, but just know the glory is not going to go to you. God is going to, Yahweh is going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So either way, God's going to be the victor. Uh, so they gathered together. He summoned uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, 10,000 men followed him. Deborah also went with him. And then here's a little random verse. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' in-law, and that could either be brother-in-law or father-in-law. The text, the word can mean either. So different translations differ. And pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaananim near Kadesh. Now that just seems random. It was not random. We're going to come back to this tent, this family of Hobab, the, the, or Heber the Kenite. But this is just setting us up. So Israel's marching up to battle. Sisera and his people are going to be there for the battle. And in the area, there's this Kenite family pitched their tents away from their people, which were kind of down here. They're, they're just kind of off on their own. It's just one of those details that's going to come up later. Back to the action. Verse 12, When they told Sisera that Barak son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. So all of Sisera's forces, they've gotten word that these Israelites are coming up, and so they get, they're mustering the troops. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down, to, went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Now that one line is going to get us, uh, in, explained in the next chapter. The Lord won the victory. And this doesn't tell us how. Next chapter is going to tell us how. And it's going to be just like kind of what he did at the Red Sea. Um, but this is just giving us, again, a, a one angle on what's happening. So the Lord won the battle. Not Barak won the battle, but the Lord won the battle. Um, Sisera got down off his chariot, fled. When his, he's the leader, and he flees. Already not great leadership, but he sees the battle's over, so he runs away. Uh, and Sisera abandoned his chariot foot on foot, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left, just like with Pharaoh's troops on chariots. So, so Barak pursues the army. Sisera slinks off the side. That's what's going on here. And Barak ends up chasing the army, the remaining uh, ones who are fleeing, and routs them, and, and they all end up being destroyed. They win the battle. Verse 17, Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite. Because there was, and NIV says there were friendly relations between King Yabin of Hatzor and the clan of Heber. But the, the Hebrew actually says because there was shalom to, between the two. There was peace. So now we find out this Heber the Kenite, he had left his people who were kind of on Israel's side. They were relatives of Israel through marriage. 
uh, distant relatives, and he is actually sided with King Yabin and made a treaty with, with the king of Hatzor. So, so Sisera is like fleeing to friendly territory, so he thinks. But he doesn't go to Heber's tent. He goes to Yael's tent. And that's an interesting point um, because these communities, you know, nomadic communities, you'd have a tent, which would kind of a family tent and the main place, but then the, wo- uh, the woman would have her own tent for her own womanly stuff and all of her accoutrements and her shoes and her... No, I didn't have, but the woman would have her own tent. And, and it, it was, you, you didn't go into a woman's tent unless you were going there for shady reasons. So Sisera fled on foot um, to the tent of Yael, wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was peace between King Yabin of Hatzor and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, and NIV, come my lord, come right in. That's not nearly as seductive. What she actually says is, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. And it's a very inviting phrase. It's an alluring phrase. It's not just, hey, come right in. You know, it's, there's a more seductive quality to this. Like, hey, turn aside to me. This is, this is a language that a prostitute would use or, or somebody who was trying to lure someone in. This, this is very, it's, just, just trust me on this. The language is more than, hey, come on in. Let's have a cup of tea. Now, this is, it's a little more alluring. So, she went out to meet him, and she said, turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. So he turned aside, and NIV says, entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. She covered him with a covering. And this is most likely some type of thick sheepskin or wool or or, or kind of a thick covering. Uh, Verse 19. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me a little water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Now that we're a very motherly image here, that, that she's in the eyes of the narrator, she's putting a little boy to bed, giving him some milk, tucking him in. So she's, she's, this is a very, all of the feminine motifs are being used to their fullest by this woman. Like she's playing up her strengths. And the next chapter is going to speak of another mother figure to Sisera as well. And, and commentators have seen there's a parallel there. But everything about this is very motherly. You know, putting him to bed, putting him to rest. You're okay, I'll cover you. Here's some, you want some water? No, I'm going to give you some milk, which could have been like yogurt or curds or something. But just something that would, you know, some of the scholars even say something to make him sleepy. But then after she says that, verse 20, he says, Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, and NIV says, is anyone here? Say no. But literally in Hebrew it says, is there a man here? Say, there is not. And that's another irony because, again, everything in the narrative is crafted for Sisera. His masculinity has been completely removed. He fled from battle. He went into this tent. He's been mothered, coddled like a little baby and put to bed. And she's keeping watch. So there, it, it's an undercurrent, but it's kind of this subtle, like the entire section is demasculating this most powerful, or emasculating, this most powerful figure of this most powerful army in, in a somewhat humorous way, as the original readers, or at least an entertaining way. The irony in the passage. So he said, stand in the doorway, and if anybody asks if there's a man in here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. 
She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. There's your memory verse of the day. You don't see this on greeting cards or get well cards. This woman, now, she did not tap him. She, tent peg, hammer, drove it into the ground. I mean, it wasn't just one killing blow. It was through one temple and out the other. It was enough to drive his head to the ground. Now, some people are like, ooh, that's pretty, you know, that's manly behavior. Not really, because guess who put up the tents in the ancient world? Women. That was part of the woman's job was to set the tents up. So women were very skilled with hammers and tent pegs. And they had to, and the, if you've ever been to the Holy Land in this region, the ground's not that soft. So they're pretty good at driving these tent pegs through hard things into dry ground. And so she does, does it this time. So again, taking a normal everyday implement, just like Shamgar used an ox code, the little stick with the metal tip on the end that you just kind of point the ox around and give them a little prod, use it to strike down 600 Philistines. Now again, in the hand of another Gentile, we see a normal everyday implement used to strike down the one who is oppressing Israel, Sisera. And now we see it wasn't Deborah who was going to get the glory, but it's this Gentile woman, Yael, this, this trickster who uses deceit like Ehud and who lures an unsuspecting uh, oppressor of Israel like King Eglon and who he then falls in a most humiliating way. It was incredibly humiliating to die on the toilet, which is what happened with Eglon, and it was incredibly humiliating to die by the hand of a woman in the ancient world. It's just how it was. And, and we see both of these happening. God is doing, using these things that are incredibly humiliating against those who have oppressed His people for years and years and years. And so it's so unexpected how all of this happens. So verse 22, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera. He finally gets there. And Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. As if they needed to <laughs> clarify that. On that day, God subdued Yabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Yabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. So this was their deliverance finally over the Canaanites. And this is the rest of the um, people that are going to oppress Israel are going to be outsiders. They're going to be people coming from the outside. Um, but the reason that Israel is going to fall in subsequent chapters is going to be they're rotting from the inside. And they're giving up their faith in God and going after these other gods. But this, again, this, this, this Deborah, Deborah, Barak, and Yael, the three of them act as the instrument of God in this section. And while Deborah is technically called the one who judges Israel, Barak's the one who's going to be praised later in the New Testament and Hebrews and the Hall of uh, Heroes uh, for his faithfulness. So he's not just like second fiddle. He was the one who led the army. So he has a role as well. So this is kind of the Deborah and Barak co-deliverance story but ultimately the act that breaks the spine of the of the oppression of the oppressors is done by this unknown gentile woman in a tent in the middle of nowhere just it's the most anticlimactic thing you could think of and so barack cannot take credit for defeating sisera um, but we're going to see next week they're going to write us sing a song about it that's going to commemorate this event and it's, most of the scholars think it's the oldest section of the book of Judges because of the language. 
but we're going to see next week now a sort of a, this was a, a, a military, ironic, literary presentation. Next week we're going to see a poetic, hymnic, celebratory presentation of this 20 years of, of, of oppression, Israel being delivered from it through unexpected means. And so we're out of time, though. So we will come back next week and pick it up, Judges chapter 5. We'll see you then. Have a great week.